How do you identify yourself to others? Identity has quietly become a foundational term for the moral revolution that our society has undergone in recent years. The idea is that you are and should be free to identify however you want. It may contradict biology, it may contradict logic, it may contradict the normal rules of grammar and the nature of pronouns, but it doesn't matter. You conceive of it, you believe it, adopt it for yourself, and everyone else in the world has to affirm and celebrate it or else they're toxic, bigoted, and should be cut off from society. Well, Christian, how do you identify yourself? As we've been studying through the beginning chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul provides us with the essence of our identity as believers. It has nothing to do with the way the world views us. It has nothing to do with so-called social constructs. It has nothing to do with our own concept of self. It has everything to do with our creator, redeemer, and king and how he views us. We are saints. We are believers. We are blessed. We are chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, lavished with God's grace, informed about his purposes and much, much more. That is who we are in Christ. No matter what anyone else calls you, no matter if anyone else accepts you, no matter if anyone else wants you, God has chosen you, Christian. He has adopted you. He has poured out his love and grace upon you in Christ. That is who you are. You are in the beloved and you are among the beloved of God. As we come to the final verses in this first section, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, the final verses in this section in verses 11 through 14 will see that all of who we are in Christ has been confirmed and sealed by the Holy Spirit. In the context of our salvation, God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who seals the deal, so to speak. He is the one who puts the stamp of approval on the transaction of our salvation. He is the one who acts as a guarantee, as our text will say, that the God who selected us from before the foundation of the world, the God who sacrificed his son for us, that he will indeed fulfill what he has promised. Again, in these four short verses, we will see that we are to praise God for the Holy Spirit as he sets us apart for God's possession and seals us for our inheritance. Those are the two points of the outline in verses 11 through 12. The Spirit sets us apart as God's possession. In verses 13 through 14, the Spirit seals us for our inheritance. Take a look at the text again, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. I'll read that entire section. We'll focus in on verses 11 through 14 for this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, 
has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Our Father, once again, we come before you and our ask this morning, our ask right now is that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray this in Christ's blessed name. Amen. Well, let's take a look at that first point again. We praise the God for the Holy Spirit who sets us apart as his possession. In our text, in verse 11, the in him refers back to Jesus Christ. Again, salvation is all a result of the work of Jesus Christ. As a result of the redemption that we have in him, the ESV text says that we have obtained an inheritance. Now, there's a pretty major translation question in this verse. The issue has to do with the word that's translated, obtain an inheritance. Bear with me for a moment. The word either means to appoint by lot or to obtain by lot. You've heard the idea of a lot before. The casting of lots was a process by which people would try to determine the will of God using dice or something of that nature. The term lot can also refer to a parcel of ground or um, a portion of something that is divided and given to one person or another. While the word that is translated here is only used in this place in the New Testament, so we don't have, typically we would go to other places where we see the word and try to figure out how it's being used to understand it, but we don't really have anything to translate, um, to compare it to. Um, and so there's, been, there's a lot of discussion uh, about this particular word, and without getting into too much of the weeds of the interpretive issue, uh, if you want to talk about that, we can talk about that on the side later, just all of the ins and outs of the interpretive issue, but... In context, this word more likely means that some were chosen as God's portion or lot. In other words, instead of it reading, we have obtained an inheritance, a better translation would be something like what we see in the New English translation, something like in Christ we have been claimed as God's own possession. So it's not our inheritance, it's not our possession, but we are God's possession in Christ. You'll notice also between verses 12 and 13, there's a shift in pronouns. We talked about pronouns earlier. Pronouns are important. He says in verse 11, in him we have been chosen as God's inheritance. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Then in verse 13, he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth and believed. In other words, he seems to refer, be referring to two different groups here. Now, that accords well with much of his argument in chapters 2 and 3 as we move forward. The we in verses 11 through 12 are those who were the first to hope in Christ. These are the ones who were chosen as God's inheritance, the ones who Paul is specifically referring to there. The you in verse 13 are those who were also sealed with the Holy Spirit. 
The point that Paul is making here is that those who were the first to hope in Christ, meaning Jewish Christians, they were literally the first ones to hope in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. These Jewish believers, those who were the first to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, they were set apart particularly as God's inheritance, God's possession. This accords well with the rest of the Old Testament. Israel was viewed as God's possession. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance. Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he's chosen as his inheritance. There are a number of other places where they're referred to in that way also. Paul picks up on this and elaborates a little bit further in Romans 9 through 11. All three of those chapters there, he talks a great deal about Israel and the plan of God and his plan for salvation for Israel. He says in chapter 9, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He says in chapter 11, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, meaning a remnant of of the people of Israel have been set apart, chosen by grace, and they have believed in the Messiah. These are set apart by God as his inheritance. Out of all of those descended from Israel, they belong to him by virtue of the redemption that is in Christ. Now, why would Paul make these distinctions? Well, the church at Ephesus was a mixed congregation, meaning it would have been both Jews and Gentiles. However, it was likely predominantly a Gentile audience. Therefore, Paul will take some time throughout this letter to discuss the significance of what God is doing in the church because he's doing something different in the church that he had not previously done before. In the church, God brings together both Jews and Gentiles into his family. This is the mystery that we touched on last week, the mystery that was made known to us. The desire of God to unite all things in Christ includes uniting Jews and Gentiles together. God does this by means of the new covenant. We read the passage earlier. Deacon Chris read earlier from Ezekiel chapter 36. I'll focus in on a couple of verses there just by way of reminder. Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Listen to what he says. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from the idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. The purpose of this new covenant was clearly stated. The Lord desired to vindicate his holy name. Israel as a nation were called by his name. He had set them apart. He had set his grace upon them as a nation, and yet they failed to honor him. They couldn't keep his law. 
even when they were dispersed among the nations for their disobedience, even when they were being chastised, being sent away from their promised land for their disobedience, even being spread among the nations, they still profaned his holy name. They still did not honor him. And so God says, for my sake, I'm about to act. For my glory, I'm going to act. I'm going to institute a new covenant with you. This is not going to be like the old covenant that I made with you before. This covenant is not going to be dependent upon you doing what is good and right. Because in this covenant, I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to wash you. I'm going to set you apart. I will mark you out as mine, and I will give you the grace and strength that you need to do what is right. He says, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is how I'm going to act. This is how I'm going to move. In the new covenant, God is promising to send his Holy Spirit, to put his spirit within them so that he might cause them to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. This was something new, something different, something that they had not previously experienced before. The new covenant was promised and the people of God were to be looking forward to that day. Towards the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus took the Passover meal with his disciples. On that day, he made clear that the new covenant would be cut for them with his blood, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but through his sacrifice. Luke 22. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, Jesus took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so he was calling the words of Ezekiel back to their mind. This is a new thing that God is doing, and he's doing it through my sacrifice. This is the redemption through the blood of Christ we discussed last week. The new covenant established through the blood of Christ will result in an outpouring of the Spirit of God on the people of God in order to set them apart for his glory. To, as the text says in Ezekiel, again, walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. That was the expectation that Israel had concerning the new covenant and the promise of the Holy Spirit. A person who had the spirit of God dwelling in them, in other words, would have been marked out as a recipient of this grace, as a participant in the new covenant. Keep that in mind. Back in our text. Again, Paul's point is that God has set apart some for himself or his inheritance from the nation of Israel. Those first Jewish believers were set apart at the very beginning of the ministry of the gospel. These were those who first hoped in Christ. This was according to the predetermined intent and purpose of God, the God who, according to verse 11, works all things after the counsel of his will. I love that verse. I love that phrase. We could gloss over it, but this One phrase that God works all things after the counsel of his will summarizes the Bible's view on the sovereignty of God. He is the one who works all things, not according to our wishes, not whenever he can thwart Satan. Some people look at, you know, God and Satan as these two opposing equally strong powers and they're kind of fighting back and forth. That's not it at all. No one is higher than God. No one is greater than God. No one can thwart his purposes. He works all things after the counsel of his will. He is God and there is no other. I love the verse in the Psalms. I believe it's in Psalm 119. I didn't write down the reference, but it says our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. 
Well, God has set apart these first believers, these first Jewish believers. He set them apart so that they would be, according to verse 12, to the praise of his glorious grace. Peter, writing to a primarily Jewish audience, said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Moving on to our next point, we praise God for the Spirit who sets his people apart for him, but we also praise God for the Spirit who is the seal of our inheritance. Look again at verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, he says, Why you also? Well, again, if we understand the we in the previous section to refer to the first Jewish believers, then the you also here refers to Gentile believers. Paul is drawing out the similarity between what happened to the Jews by means of the new covenant and what has also happened to the Gentiles. He's elaborating on it here because it's kind of a big deal. Again, this is a part of the mystery. The uniting of all things in Christ, again, pertains even to Jews and Gentiles in the church. Understand that when the new covenant promise was originally shared to the Jews, they had no idea that it would also involve a provision for the Gentiles. In the book of Acts, the Jewish believers, even the apostles, were at first surprised when the Gentiles who heard the gospel had the Holy Spirit given to them. I have a quote from an an, an author here who commented on that. It's kind of a lengthy quote, just uh, bear with me. He says the communication of the gospel to the Gentiles was undertaken reluctantly by the first believers who could scarcely entertain the thought that the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel should embrace outsiders within its saving scope. Apart from Peter, who required a special revelation from heaven before he could bring himself to accept Cornelius' invitation to visit him and tell him and his household the way of salvation, Gentile evangelization began as a result of private enterprise when unnamed Hellenists of Cyprus and Cyrene came to Antioch and told the story of Jesus to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. From then on, throughout the provinces of the Eastern Roman Empire, many more Gentiles than Jews believed the gospel, and the terms on which they might be admitted became a matter of serious concern in the mother church Jerusalem. When, as Luke records, the apostles and elders of Jerusalem were gathered together to consider the matter, Peter argued that it would be wise to follow the example of God who gave proof of his acceptance of Gentile believers by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Peter said he made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter said they were given the Holy Spirit just like us. They came to faith in Christ just like us and were given the same promise. God has affirmed them, so should we. Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, And he, Jesus, came and preached to you who were far off, the Gentiles. He preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him, again through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
We have access to, the, to God through Christ as a redemption, as a result of the redemption that is in him. We have access in one spirit to the Father. Again, back to our text. The Jews who were the first to hope in Christ were set apart as God's possession and used by God to take the message of Christ even to the Gentiles. Again, as it said in Ezekiel 36, to show the nations, even the nations, that he is the Lord and that he is God. Paul is evidence of this as he, a Jewish believer, was set apart particularly as an apostle to the Gentiles. Well, again, our text says, in him you also were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit is a marker indicating that we have been set apart for God as a part of this new covenant. And this is true whether you're Jew or Gentile. That's kind of the point. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. The gospel is the word of truth. The word of truth is the gospel. It is right to declare the gospel to be truth. It is right to declare the word of God to be truth. The, word reject, the world rejects the notion of absolute truth, at least any absolute truth pertaining to morality that all pe- people must adhere to. But that is precisely what the gospel is. The gospel is the word of truth. It is God's word. It is absolute truth. It is absolutely and universally binding on everyone. Because God is Lord over all. It is to be universally declared and is universally binding upon all people because the Savior who is Lord has all authority in heaven and on earth. Humanly speaking, though, we must respond to the gospel. He says, this is the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation that you heard and believed. If we preach the gospel, we must preach it with clarity and set the expectation that there ought to be a response, right? We don't preach the gospel as an exercise of futility. We don't preach the gospel as one option among many. We preach the gospel in the way that God has communicated the gospel, that you must believe in the Lord Jesus, period. In John 6, the people who are running after Jesus to get more bread for their bellies. Jesus says to them that you must do the work of God, and they say, what is the work of God? Jesus said in John 6, 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. What does God want me to do? What does God want from me? He wants you, everyone, all of us, every human being who walks the face of his earth to believe in the Lord Jesus. That is a command. That is our responsibility. If we do not, his wrath abides on us. It remains on us. Because we are in rebellion against him. Again, back to our text, the gospel, the word of truth, when it is preached, heard, and believed, results in the individual being sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Again, that was the expectation set in Ezekiel 36 when God promised to pour out his spirit upon his people. And again, Paul is saying in our text, the same Holy Spirit who was promised to Israel was also poured out on you. Well, what does it mean that the Spirit seals us? In antiquity, the signet ring of the king was used to seal letters. Wax was poured on the letter once it was written so that the contents could be concealed. And the king would place his signet ring in the wax before it uh, hardened 
And his insignia, the insignia of his signet ring would authenticate that the letter was from him. He had a unique ring. Nobody else had a ring like him. No one else could forge a ring like his. And so everyone knew if you saw a ring with a particular kind of seal in it, that that was the king's writing. It was, it was uh, a declaration of the king. Our salvation is confirmed as authentic by means of the indwelling Holy Spirit. When you hear the gospel and believe, when you believe in the word of truth, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon you as a seal that you are God's possession, that you belong to him. This is the seal, the authentication of the new covenant. It is the Holy Spirit poured out upon you. Again, it's true for all who hear and believe. And again, this is why we pray for the unreached. This is why we pray for our neighborhood. This is why we pray for friend and family. Because God has to do his work. We pray for God to do his work. We go and we preach and we help to send others to go and preach and we pray that God would do the work through his Holy Spirit of regenerating and sealing those who hear and believe. That is true regardless of whether we're talking about the Maniyika of Mozambique or people in downtown Catonsville, downtown Baltimore. As Paul's emphasis in the text, both Jews and Gentiles receive the, the seal of the Holy Spirit. Thus, both Jews and Gentiles in the church of Jesus Christ belong to him as his possession. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Romans 8, 14, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Ephesians 2.22, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God for the Spirit. The Spirit indwells believers. He sets us apart as the people of God. All of us together who are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. We are set apart by the Spirit of God and marked out as his. Paul further applies this truth in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul's point there was to remind believers that they ought not to engage in sexual immorality because their bodies do not belong to them. Their lives do not belong to them. They have been bought with a price. The Lord owns their lives, even their bodies. The indwelling Holy Spirit is evidence that our bodies do not belong to us. That is why sexual purity is so important. That is why modesty is important. Not because it's the Christian thing to do, to be stuffy, repressive, oppressive, hindering the sexuality of others. No. It is because we recognize that our lives and our very bodies do not belong to us. They belong to the Lord. They're here for his glory, for his purposes. Again, that's why contrary to the ideology of today, we who have put our faith in Christ cannot choose to do with our bodies or our lives in general whatever we want. We do not belong to ourselves. Our bodies do not belong to ourselves. We do not believe in the autonomy of the individual concerning their body. As believers, we belong to the Lord. 
This applies to the so-called non-binary movement, the transgender movement, homosexuality in general, homosexuality in general, and even abortion. You cannot be a believer, a Christian, and do with your body what you want. You cannot be a Christian and choose to do with your body or your life or your identity something that God has not called good for humanity. To put it positively, if we are Christian, if we belong to Christ, if we trusted in Christ, then we ought to live in a way that God has affirmed that he has sovereignly ordained for us to live because we belong to him, period. He purchased us with a price. Again, the Holy Spirit is a seal, the authenticating seal that we belong to God, that we are his possession, his people. He is a seal for all who hear and believe in the gospel. The significance of this truth will become clear as we continue through the book of Ephesians, particularly as Paul discusses the unity of the body of Christ. As a primer, you can consider this, that the body of Christ is made up of Jews and every form of Gentile. Doesn't matter for black, white, Hispanic, Asian, African, wherever in the world we come from or our ancestors come from, if you believe the word of truth, the gospel, then you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit as your neighbor and anyone else who has believed. That makes us a part of the church of Jesus Christ. That makes us God's possession, his inheritance together. That is why unity matters in the body of Christ. Not because we intend to manufacture some semblance of oneness. Not because we're gathered around a common personality or a leader. Not because we're gathered around a particular cause or charity. Not because we are one, we are unified. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.18, through Christ we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He's going to say in Ephesians 4.3 that we should be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We are to preserve the unity, the, the natural organic unity that we have in the spirit of God in the church. As we continue through the book of Ephesians, we will gain more insight into the nature of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But for now, Paul indicates that not only did the spirit seal us and that seal serves as an authentication, but he also serves as a guarantee. Look at verse 13, that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Again, the Spirit seals us. He is a stamp of authentication that the Father places on us as his people. He is also the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In this text, the believer is viewed as the inheritance of God, the lot that he receives out of the whole of humanity. We are God's portion. We are his inheritance. We are chosen in Christ. We are beloved in Christ, adopted into the family of Christ. We have been redeemed by his blood. Our sins have been forgiven and forgotten. We are part of the new covenant in the blood of Christ. Because of all of these things are true, we've also been given an inheritance. An inheritance is something that is yours by right, but that you don't possess till sometime in the future. That's the idea here. We have something else to look forward to. We have received grace, but there's greater grace to come. Paul will say in Ephesians 4.30 that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Our inheritance will come on the day of redemption. That is when God will fully redeem us. We are already redeemed in one sense, right? We talked about that in Ephesians 1.7 in the sense that our sins have been forgiven. We have been saved from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin by the blood of Jesus. That is true of us today. But we have not yet been saved from the presence of sin. That's when we'll be taken away. We'll be taken away to be with God. 
That day is future. That is the day of our final redemption. Christ himself spoke of this in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's not just a message for funerals, beloved. That's our future. The Apostle John says it this way, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. If you seem strange to the world, if the world doesn't understand why you do the things that you do, why you live the way you live, it's because they don't know him. They don't know your Father in heaven. Beloved, we are God's children now, John says. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, Jesus, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Sometimes there are these little phrases in the middle of these long, beautiful sections of scripture that just pierce my heart. And I love those five, ver- five words, we will be like him. That is the hope of every believer. Not that we'll be a better version of ourselves. I get sick of myself sometimes. Not that we'll be like Mike, because Mike ain't worth it, but that we'll be like Jesus someday. That's the promise of God. We will be like him. As much as we struggle, as many times as we struggle against sin, As much as we hurt, this is the promise of God, beloved. We will be like him. Hope in God. Peter said it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith. You have an inheritance. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. And it will not fade away. God is reserving it for you, believer. And he says as a result of this, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where our minds ought to be. That's where our hope ought to be. That's what we ought to be looking forward to. Each of those sections indicates some aspect of what we have to look forward to concerning our inheritance. We will finally be with God. We will finally be like God. We'll be like Christ. Our inheritance is set apart for us. This is something that we ought to set our hearts and minds on today. Not tomorrow. Today. We should be thinking about this. Beloved, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance. He is a guarantee that God will do what he promised. We know what that word guarantee means, right? When we go to purchase a home or a car, we have to come up with a down payment. 
And what's the purpose of the down payment? Well, the lender wants, the lender wants to know that you're not just going to run off with their product. They want to know that you're invested in this thing. They want to know that you're going to finish what you started. And so they require you to put some money down up front as a down payment to say, yes, I will commit to paying this thing off. Certainly in the world of men, there are defaults. But the down payment spoken of here is not from man. The down payment here is from God. He has given us his Holy Spirit as a down payment to guarantee that he will finish what he started. What he intended from before the foundation of the world, what he sent his son to die for, what he has given his spirit to authenticate, God will bring to fruition. He is the guarantee of our inheritance, again, until we acquire possession of it. From time to time, we may doubt, we may wonder if our salvation is genuine. It may be because of a particularly difficult trial. Maybe because we have lingered too long in some sin, our hearts have become callous to the things of God. It may be because we're not actually believing. And our doubt is real because we're not really trusting in Christ yet. Regardless, what authenticates our salvation is not our doubt or our confidence, but it's the Holy Spirit. He is the down payment that God has provided to let us in the world know that we belong to him and that he will finish what he started. The glory that is promised to us in Christ, again, we will be like him, will be ours on that day. We never have to wonder if it will be ours. It will be ours, and we know that for certain because he's already given us the Holy Spirit. The question is, do you have the Spirit dwelling in you? He is your guarantee. Is he present in your life? Again, a prayer isn't the guarantee of salvation. Your good works and your ability to be nice to people on Sunday morning when you come here and smile at one another is not the guarantee of your salvation. The Holy Spirit indwelling you is the guarantee of your salvation. Is he present in your life? Well, how do you know if he's present? Paul gives us a clue in Galatians chapter 5. He says in chapter 5, verse 16 of Galatians, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Do you see the work of the Spirit in your life? That's not something you can manufacture on your own. Jesus said you'll know a tree by its fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is fruit born in the life of a person who has the Spirit of God in them. It is either there or it isn't. 
Is your life characterized by these things? Again, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is your life characterized by the fruit of the Spirit? It either is or it isn't. Either you have the Spirit of God in you or you do not. Sometimes it's difficult for us to objectively evaluate ourselves. Ask someone else. Ask a believer, someone who you've seen the work of the Spirit evident in their lives, who knows you well enough to tell. Ask them if they've seen the evidence of the Spirit in them, in you. Paul charges believers in Galatia to walk in the Spirit. Either you can obey that or you cannot. If you find that you cannot, if you find that you do not have the work of the Spirit evident in your life, go back to the basics. Evaluate whether or not you are actually in the faith. Turn your heart to Jesus and say, Lord, I need you. I need your saving grace to work in my life, and I need your Holy Spirit in me to enable me to walk in your ways. Confess that to him. Do that today. Do that right now if you need to. Lord, I need you. You are the Savior. There is no other. I know that you sacrificed yourself for me. You shed your blood for me. And I need you to cleanse me of my sin. I need you to do what you said you would do in Ezekiel 36, to cleanse me, to sprinkle clean water on me, to wash my heart clean, to give me a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone, to give me your Holy Spirit so that I might walk in your ways. If you know him, let me ask you, do you know that God... Do you think that God will ever fail to take care of his possession, his people? You belong to him. He chose you from before the foundation of the world. He sent his son to die for you. You've been sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. The Lord has said that we can take his word, that he will finish what he started. And again, he's given his Holy Spirit as a down payment to confirm it. Do you think he would ever let his Holy Spirit be spoiled, lost, forgotten? This text pushes us to the height of confidence. The church has an eternal confidence, beloved. That eternal confidence has everything to do with the fact that we belong to God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3.20 that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That is true because it is God's desire to be glorified in the church. We are his people. He has invested himself in us for his glory. Again, he said, I'm going to act for my name's sake. He has set us apart in him for his glory. So there's nothing that he would fail to do for us. That's our confidence as the church. What will separate you from his love? He has set his love upon you for his glory. What's going to tear you away from his love? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Shall sickness? Shall abuse from the world? Shall them disdaining you for being a Christian separate you from the love of God? I am convinced along with the Apostle Paul that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, whatever those things may be, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Spurgeon said, it is not our hold of Christ, but rather his hold of us that is our confidence. 
And again, as we conclude here, Paul says, as the Spirit has been given us to bring us into the family of God, to authenticate his ownership, to serve as a guarantee until the day of redemption. At the end of verse 14, he says that this was all done to the praise of his glory. Again, this section in verses 3 through 14 is a call to worship. As you think through the myriad of spiritual blessings with which we have been blessed by God the Father in our Lord Jesus Christ, do you thank him for the gift of the Spirit? Again, we'll see, we'll discuss additional aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the life of the believer as we go through Ephesians. But considering the things we discussed this morning, have you considered these truths as a regular part of your worship? Have you considered the ministry of the indwelling Spirit as a reason to give thanks to the Lord for His grace in sending Him into your life and into the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ? These are the concluding verses, again, to this section. And this is one long epic sentence that Paul has written in verses 3 through 14. The content of this verse spanned from eternity past in the mind of God, his choice to save some of humanity, to the incarnation and crucifixion of Christ, to the preaching of the gospel, the sealing of believers, and all the way to eternity future as we think about our future inheritance. This is the grace of God for his people. This is the salvation of his people. The Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in this grace in which we stand. This is who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. This is our identity. If we're looking for a way to identify yourself as a member of Christ's church, this is it. We are beloved by God in Christ. We are chosen. We are those who will stand before him holy and blameless. We are the children of God through adoption in Christ. We are the redeemed. We are the forgiven. We are saints, no longer worthless sinners and children of wrath. We are God's confidants, having been told his secret, the mystery that was previously hidden but now has been revealed. We are God's people, his inheritance. He set us apart in his Holy Spirit. He sealed us with his Holy Spirit, marking us as his people. We are joint heirs with Christ, having been given an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and which will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. We are those of all of God's creation who have been set apart for the praise of his glorious grace. In 1 Peter, Peter says that angels long to look into our salvation. They long to know more about the grace of God, but we know it because we have been made recipients of it. Scripture says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Be proud of who you are in Christ, beloved. We have experienced the fullness of the grace of God, and there is more to come. We ought to live like it. We ought to praise him like it. Remember, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the work that your Holy Spirit does and setting us apart in you, and making us a part of this new covenant that was cut through the blood of Christ. Thank you for the seal that he places on our lives, marking us out as your people. Thank you for the guarantee that he is of our future inheritance, that you who have promised will finish what you started, that the salvation that you began in us, you will bring to completion that we have to look forward to the grace 
that will be revealed to us when Jesus Christ returns. We will be like him. And we can be sure of that as your people as we rest in your promised Holy Spirit. Pray this in Christ's blessed name. Amen.